Welcome to Ed Ideas, relevant conversations for Christian education. As image bearers of God, we have been created to actually carry out this work of cultivation, unpacking, unfurling, so that making is how we be human. Anytime culture is going through transition and there's significant change, you can either look at it as, hey, this is the worst thing ever, or what an opportunity. We know that all adolescents are asking some really direction-setting questions in their life. The very first thing said about us in the Hebrew Scriptures is not that we are bad, that we are dirty, that we are sinful, that we are shameful, that we are anything. The very first thing said about us is we bear the image of God. Hey guys, it's Brandon Tatum, and this is the Ed Ideas Podcast. Today we're going to get to hear from Dr. James K.A. Smith, as he presents From Consumption to Creativity, Shaping Students Who Contribute to Culture. Please enjoy as we hear Jamie from the conference stage. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure. Uh, It's it's, uh, great to be here. I'm excited to see what um, Brandon is sort of cooking up for you uh, over these next couple of days. I think the theme is right on point for conversations that we need to be having today. And uh, it's, so it's an honor to sort of be a conversation starter. And, and what I hope I can do this morning is put a number of ideas on the table that maybe will become catalysts. I'm, I'm actually most looking forward to our conversation afterwards and hearing uh, questions that you have so that we can uh, explore some of these themes together. What I want to do this morning is um, I want to try to organize my thoughts around four, let's call them beats. There are sort of four beats to this argument, four axioms, four principles, if you will, and they're this, and I'm going to unpack each of them. But here's the sort of arc of the argument. Uh, And and this is, by by the way, uh, um, you're not young people. I don't (laughs) see So we're thinking about young people, but uh, um, uh, this is what I would say to them, but it's actually the same thing I would say to all of us, (laughs) because it's about what it means to be human. So the the four themes, the four beats are this. You were made to be a maker. You were made to be a maker. You make what you want. You might not want what you think. Therefore, curate your heart. So um, let, let me say that, and then I'm gonna, I want to dive into each of these, right? This is, this is the, the argument. You were made to be makers. You make what you want. You might not want what you think. Therefore, curate your heart, curate your imagination in order so that we can contribute redemptively to the world. That's, I, I'm stealing a bit of my own thunder here, but that's what we're going to get to. So let, let me start with this first theme. And I want to open uh, um, and frame this contribution to be contributors, to be makers, with uh, 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 just a very brief reading of Genesis chapter 1. Verse, and I'll begin in verse 26. I, by the way, I'm not a preacher, the son of a preacher. I'm a philosopher. Uh, um, so lower your expectations immediately, but I want us to, uh, um, these are passages that will be familiar to you, but I want to now you to hear this in the context of this call to contribute. In Genesis 1.26, it says, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And so God gives them all of that and then it, of course, concludes in Genesis 1.31 where God looks at this, he saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. So here's what I want us to see, this principle, you are made to be makers, is embedded in the very beginning of the biblical narrative. Because what we hear in this creation of humankind is actually already an articulation of what the mission of being human is, right? Now, there, there are two aspects of this that I, that I want us to appreciate. When, when God says, we're going to make humanity in our image, human beings are created by God to be his image bearers. By the way, the echo, the really, really important echo of this is then in Colossians chapter 1, where Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ shows us again how to be human, right? But when it says that God creates us to be his image bearers, what you need to realize is there's actually a prophetic polemic that's going on in this description because God is giving this word to his people Israel and they are receiving this word and they are receiving it in the midst of contested conceptions of what it is to worship. And in fact, what, what's going on is who else had images around Israel? All the idolaters. Right? So remember, one of the, one of the constant critiques, the, the prophets are constantly criticizing idols and those who bow down to idols, and he criticizes Baal and all of the rival gods because they have these temples, and inside is an image which is mute and silent and dead and made of wood and stone. And one of the most important sort of uh, um, epiphanies I, I remember learning about how to read this passage it was from my friend uh, Richard Middleton, an Old Testament scholar at Roberts Wesleyan University. And he says, what you have to hear is when, when it says that God creates humanity in God's image to bear his image, you have to realize that what God is saying is, I have a temple too. It is the entire cosmos. And I have an image inside my temple but they're alive. They live and move and have their being in me. So that when it says that human beings are created in God's image, I want you to hear that not so much as just like saying that God sort of stamped these characteristics onto these creatures he called into existence, but that in fact their very calling into existence comes with a mission which is to bear God's image to the world and for the sake of the world. So that God's image here is less just a property that human beings have, and it's actually something more like a mission that they are deputized to carry out. Does that make sense? So that image bearing, think of image bearing as a verb. It's something that we do. 
Well, what, how, how do we bear God's image? What does it mean for us, for God, the cosmic creator, to have called existence into being and to have placed as us as his living, breathing image bearers in the, in the temple of the cosmos? How do we do that? What does it look like for us to do that? Well, that's when God blesses them and gives them a commission. We often talk about the Great Commission. I want you to start to read Genesis 1 as the first commission. And what is the commission? It's to do. (laughs) It's to act. It's to build. It's to cultivate, right? Look Look at these dynamics of God blesses them and God says to them what is at once a blessing and an exhortation. It it is a promise and a command. He says to them, here's the things that I want you to do in order to bear my image. The first is, be fruitful and multiply. Best part of image bearing. Uh, uh, Secondly, to then, now I want you to try to uh, appreciate the the sort of connotations of the words that follow. Uh, uh, By the way, I don't mean to make light of that first part. In other words, in many ways, the first act of contribution we have is, is householding, is, is the, the hard, good work of parenting for those of us who are called to that. And so I don't, I don't want to minimize that as an act of culture-making, an unmitigated act of culture-making, which is increasingly lost our, in our culture. And, to, and by the way, to build households that image God is an incredible witness and testimony in our current secular age. But then secondly, I'm I'm most interested, I want to dive now into this theme of where God says to fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. Remember, God is calling humanity into existence and he places them in this garden and then he basically unleashes them to cultivate it right? To unpack it. So I I think one of the most exciting ways to imagine what the mission of being human is, the mission of bearing God's images, is to imagine that what happens when God calls creation into existence is uh, 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 it it, it sort of uh, comes into being as this packed, dense, folded uh, uh, um, ball of potentiality. A ball might not be the best way to think about it, but do you know what I mean? Like, imagine uh, um, when, when we lived in Philadelphia, we used to go to the WHYY PBS store. We probably, dorks, right? Parents hate us. We go to the PBS store. But in the PBS store, there was this really cool toy where it was like this little plastic ball. It was about this big. Have you ever seen something like this? But then when you picked it up, the whole thing expanded to a ball about this big. Uh, that's kind of how I think about creation. That in a sense, when God calls creation out of nothing and calls it into existence and then places humanity in there as his image bearers, what he's actually doing is commissioning us to unfurl and unfold and unpack all of the potential and capacity that is, that is, have been embedded in creation but is scandalously waiting for us to unfold it. I think it's very important to realize that when God calls creation into existence, it is without question affirmed as very good. But it's not finished. It's not, I actually think it's helpful if Christians realize that there's a difference between saying something is very good and saying something is perfect. Right? 
Now, we, we know it wasn't perfect because the fall happens, and we probably need to talk about that. But we also know it's not perfect because, in fact, creation is created with all of this potential and possibility that is waiting to be unfolded and unfurled, and its perfection is a kingdom. So what, you're moving from a garden to a city, and humanity is placed now as stewards makers, creators, cultivators of all of the possibility and potential that God has loaded into creation. And in, again, in a moment of almost what seems mad to me, he deputizes us to be the ones who are responsible for that unfurling and unfolding. And if we do that in a way that is normed by God's desires for creation, the signals of which are the coming kingdom, now we will be makers who unfold and unfurl creation's possibilities and potentials that, in a way that run with the grain of the universe as God dreamed it. So that uh, uh, um, you were made to be makers means that as image bearers of God, we have been created to actually carry out this work of cultivation, unpacking, unfurling, so that making is how we be human. Does that make sense? That our, our cultural labors, our creative labors, and, and that includes everything from, you know, householding and building families to launching startups in Silicon Valley. All of the, that work of creating is how we bear God's image because it's how we steward the creation that he has placed us into. The trick, of course, is to do that in a way that unfolds with and, and, and uh, um, according to what God desires for his creation. You can unfold it badly. You can, you can unfurl it in disordered ways. And immediately in the biblical narrative, we see how that happens. So this is why uh, uh, um, we're going to have to come back to why we need to be careful how we make. How are we doing so far? Okay? So we are made to be makers is, is emphasizing that the work of being human, the commission we've given, uh, been given as God's image bearers, is not just religious. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? In other words, the scope of God's interest and concern in how we are faithful before him is as wide as creation itself. And it's precisely why human beings redeemed by Jesus Christ have vocations across the entire scope of God's creation as well, right? Some, it depends a little bit on, on the, what Christian tradition you're coming from, but I know when I first learned this, I came through, I came into the body of Christ through a Christian tradition that imagined if you were really serious about God, you were A, waiting for the rapture, and in the meantime, you would be a pastor or a missionary. And that's kind of how you served God. Sounds... Some people have been there. Uh, um, uh, uh, that, I would say, comes with a very truncated understanding of creation and our image bearing. And what I think happens is if you actually read the entire arc of Scripture, you realize that God is calling us into all of these other spaces. So, you are made to be makers, unfurlers, unfolders, unpackers, creators. Secondly, you make what you want. Now, I want to uh, um, spend just a moment on this because I think the next point will unpack it. Our creativity, our making, our cultural labor, right? When you, I want you to hear 
in the word culture making, as, as uh, Andy Crouch has put it, hear the word cultivation from Genesis chapter 1, our making, creating, innovating, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, um, dreaming, <laughs> building, all of that is much more nourished by what we want to achieve than by principles we bring to it in advance. Or, or let, let, me, let me put this a slightly different way. We are not always aware of the extent to which our creating and cultivating is unfolded and unfurled because some vision of the world we dream of has captured and captivated our imagination. So that when you are making, when you are building, when you are contributing, in a sense, at some tacit often maybe kind of unconscious level, what's happening is, is you are playing out a role in a story that you've absorbed in which you imagine that this is what a good world looks like. This is what a good flourishing life looks like. This is what a good society looks like. The, the Canadian philosopher uh, Charles Taylor would say every human being lives out of the fuel of what he calls a social imaginary. And the reason he calls it a social imaginary is because this isn't often something that you are thinking about, right? It's not that you are sort of cogitating on it and thinking about it reflectively. Rather, it's on the level of the imagination such that what, what's going on is you have sort of in, at this gut level absorbed this story, this narrative, this imagination of what you think a good, flourishing life, society, world looks like. And because every human being has absorbed some story about the good, some vision of what is effectively their kingdom, we are all contributing, making, creating less out of sort of didactic principles that we've absorbed in our minds and much more out of this baseline orienting story that's grabbed hold of our guts, our hearts, our longings, our desires. So now we make the world that we want. Does that, does that make sense? So you are, you're made to be a maker and now what we need to realize is our making is governed by our longings. <laughs> the world I want is the world I build towards. So you're made to be a maker. You make what you want. Now here's the sort of uncomfortable moment. You might not want what you think. Right, because I wonder if you could see the key question here. If if I am, if every human being really is created with this capacity to contribute, to build, to make, to cultivate, and that labor of innovation, creation, and cultivation is sort of generated from this implicit story I've absorbed about what I long for in the world, what we think the world is called to be. Well, then the really key question we have to ask ourselves is well, how do I learn what I want, <laughs> right? Where, where do my wants come from? Where do my longings come from? If, if my cultivating and contributing is really kind of bubbling up from this well of my wants and longings and hopes, then I need to start asking myself, what's shaping my wants? What's training my longings? What is orienting my desires for the world? 
And is it possible that I don't want what I think? Could there be a disconnect between those two things? This um, hit home for me uh, by, when I was watching a film by the Russian filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky, which is probably a sign I need better hobbies. But, so Russian, uh, 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 Andrei Tarkovsky, you, you might know, um, he has a famous film called Andrei Rublev. Or, anyway, don't worry, if you haven't seen it, it's okay. This film is called Stalker. Which is, and it's also not as creepy as that. T- I think there's a tra- something's lost in translation in this, in this translation of it because uh, um, I, I want to give you the simple plot because I want to set up a scene that unveils why there could be this disconnect between what I want and what I think I want. The plot of the film is actually pretty straightforward. Um, the, setting is, the setting is basically Chernobyl. Like the, the, the setting is basically this post-apocalyptic bombed out wasteland of a world. Imagine a world that is just gray and black and white and and somber and sad and it's like Cormac McCarthy's, the film version of The Road. Do you know what I mean? Just this desolate, desolate world. And in this world, there are three characters that we want to focus on. There's the writer, the professor. So obviously I'm going to love this movie, right? There's the writer, the professor, and then this key figure called the stalker, who's really, if, don't, it's not a creepy, think of him as just the guide. He's the guide, right? And what's going on in this, in this sort of desolate post-apocalyptic world is writer and professor have come to stalker, the guide, because they have heard that stalker is the one who can lead them to a kind of magical sci-fi space within this bombed out world that's simply called the zone. And within this space called the zone is a sort of inner sanctuary, a kind of holy holies that is simply called the room, right? So Tarkovsky's not super creative in naming things. You've got writer, professor, come to stalker stalker will you please take us to the zone because we want to get to the room why because in the room you get exactly what you want in the room you realize your heart's desires and so what happens is the film basically tracks them on this arduous journey pilgrimage really this, uh, trying to make their way through this desolate wasteland. So then they get to the sort of bright, um, you can almost think of it as the shift from black and white to color. And now they step into these lush environs of the zone. And eventually they start to make their way up to the threshold of the room. And it's at that point, I want to bring you into the film because now they're on the, the, the edge of the room. They're at the threshold of the door. The room is where they get their heart's desire. In the room, you get exactly what you want, which is also why when they finally get to the threshold of the room, they both get cold feet. Now, I want to read a description of this scene for a moment uh, by Jeffrey Dyer, one of our great critics. They are in a big, dark, abandoned, derelict, damp room with what looked like the remains of an enormous chemistry set floating in a puddle in the middle, as if the zone resulted from an ill-conceived experiment that went horribly wrong. Off to the right, through a large hole in the wall, is a source of light that they all look towards. 
For a long while, no one speaks. The air is full of the chirpy, chirpy, cheep, cheep of birdsong. It's the opposite of those places where the sedge has withered from the lake and no birds sing. Here, the birds are whistling and chirping and singing like mad. And Stalker tells writer and professor, he tells us that we are now on the very threshold of the room. This is the most important moment in your life, he says. Your innermost wish will be made true here. So it's like Stalker brings them up to the room, opens the door, and says, who wants to go first? And neither of them want to step into the room. It's like, dude, this is, we, we just came through all of this to get to this room. This is where you get exactly what, this is the whole point. Why, why would they not do that? Well, says Dyer, what if I don't know what I want? What if I don't know what I want? Remember, when you get into this room, you step into the room and you are going to get exactly what your heart really desires. Here's the question. Are you sure you want to step into that room? Do you want what you think? That is for the room to decide, Dyer says. The room reveals all. What you get is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply wish for. And so now you can see this disturbing epiphany is starting to creep up on writer and professor. What if they don't want what they think? Right? What if in some sense the deepest longings that orient and govern them are humming along under their conscious awareness? What if, in effect, they are not who they think they are? Now, so, hey, listen, I, I, I think we all have similar sort of experiences of this. Here, here, imagine, look, if I, if I could poll all of you who are at this conference and I ask you, what do you really want? What do you ultimately want? Here's the thing. You know the answer. You know the right answer. And actually, and I'm not being cynical, I actually... I believe you when you say that, that your intellectual conviction is what you want is what God wants. That you want the realization of kingdom come. I, I, I totally believe you. Here's the question. <laughs> Do you want to step into that room? Because could there be any gap between our intellectual convictions about what we want for the world and what we've really learned to want? <laughs> well, this is where, okay, you're made to be makers, you make what you want. Now the key question is, how do my wants get shaped? How do my, what is, what is the, the governing narrative and story that gets planted in me so that it actually generates my contrib contributing, my creating, my cultivating? And this is where I want us to realize that your wants, your longings, your hungers, your, what you crave for the world is not something that you just, acquired didactically through the intellect. There are all kinds of rival competing visions of what the world is supposed to look like that subtly get hold of us, not because they convince the intellect, but because they actually capture our imagination in ways that we don't even realize, right? In other words, why, why could it be that I don't want what I think? Because I don't realize that my wants have been shaped by rival stories of the good. That my loves and longings and desires for the world have actually been unconsciously and subtly co-opted by rival 
disordered versions of the good life, not because they've argued me to a conclusion, not because they've convinced my intellect, but because they have captured my imagination. It's, it's like in the, uh, uh, um, 30 Rock where Liz Lemon's like, I want to go to there. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like oh, that's nice. And, and, and what I want us to realize is these rival visions for what the world should look like are appealing to us on the register of our imagination. They're not trying to change our minds. And, and by the way, I, I do think uh, uh, adolescence is a period where we are particularly susceptible to these rivals. See, what I want us to realize is you make what you want and you might not want what you think because we haven't learned to be intentional about curating our hearts, curating our imaginations, uh, uh, attending to the dynamics by which our hearts and imaginations are captured by stories. Now, how, how does that work? Well, this is where I, I want to in, introduce one more piece. I think we're doing okay here. I was worried I bit off a little more than we could chew this morning, but I think we're doing okay. I want us to, uh, um, I want to introduce what might be a sort of a weird, clunky term to use, but how do these stories get hold of us? How, does, how do these rival visions of the good life capture my imagination such that I might not even realize I'm making a world other than what God wants? Well, uh, um, I want to say it happens primarily through rituals that we are immersed in, not just media that we are consuming. Now, that's a part of it. But what I want to uh, introduce is a concept of what I'm going to call cultural liturgies, liturgies. Now, that, I, I admit, especially uh, um, in certain Christian traditions, that's like a really bad word. Uh, uh, so I want to I redeem the L word here for a second. And, and uh, um, I want you to think of it with a small L. And I am, it is a kind of an intentionally churchy religious word, but it's actually because I want you to see what is at stake religiously in our cultural immersion, right? So here's the shorthand definition of a liturgy, is a love-shaping practice. A liturgy is a love-shaping practice, a heart-training practice. Now, what do I mean by practice? By practice, I mean a communal, social, rhythm, routine, and ritual that isn't just something that you do, but is doing something to you, okay? So a liturgy is a heart-shaping practice, love-orienting practice, a want-making practice. And the reason why it, it, it has this effect on you is because it's not just something that you do, it's doing something to you. And what it's doing to you, though, is not trying to inform your intellect or change your mind or convince you with an argument. Instead, what it's doing to you is it is enacting a story about what the good life is and co-opting your imagination and your affections over time such that you become the kind of person now who has practiced your way into wanting that instead of that. Everybody with me? So in the sense... Uh, uh, um, Liturgies, if liturgies are love-shaping practices, 
rituals and rhythms and routines that we give ourselves over to over and over and over again that aren't just something that we do but are doing something to us and that are loaded with a vision of what the good life is that we should build towards, the, the, the crucial point we have to realize is liturgies are everywhere. These are not <laughs> confined to the tidy walls of the church's sanctuary. In fact, what has to happen now is put on a new set of cultural analysis lenses so that you look at your everyday immersion and realize that in a sense, we are constantly embedded in rival liturgies that are loaded with a very different vision of the good life. And if we don't realize that they are liturgies, we then just kind of blithely and naively give ourselves over to them, thinking they're just something that we do, and we don't realize that they're doing something to us. So when, when my kids were teenagers, uh, um, w- one way we don't, this, you know, this is 10 years ago now, but uh, um, we, we used to have this sort of running joke in the house where uh, um, if one of the kids wanted me to drop them off the mall, especially my oldest son, he'd be like, Dad, can you take us to the temple? Ho, 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 ho. And, and he's totally mocking me in the process. But I was, I was actually okay with it because it, it was a sign of a parenting win because it showed that a conversation stuck that we had in which I tried to emphasize to the kids that Woodland Mall is one of the most religious sites in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And if you know anything about Grand Rapids, Michigan, that's saying something. Now, why is it a religious site? Well, it's not because when you walk in, somebody's meeting you at the door and says, here's the 15 fundamental truths that we believe. Here's what we want you to think. The last thing the mall wants you to do is think, right? Well, then what makes it religious? It's religious not because it's didactic, but because it's liturgical. This is how, how how does somebody become a consumerist? How does somebody get suckered by the gospel of consumerism? Well, it's not because somebody comes and gives... There's no apologetics for consumerism. Do you know what I mean? Like somebody doesn't meet you on the street and say, I've got 15 good arguments for why you should think stuff will make you happy. I mean, as an idea, as an argument, it's actually mad. It's, it's, It's ridiculous. Does that mean there are no consumerists in the world? Hardly. How does this work? Because you are conscripted by the liturgies of consumption. We practice our way into consumerism, and what happens is, over time, and by the way, Christians are not immune. We practice this over time. We give ourselves over to the litanies and liturgies of a consumerist culture, and we didn't even realize they were liturgies. We thought they were just something that we do, and we didn't realize that they're doing something to us. And over time, before you get to the end of it, you realize that really, functionally, we also believe stuff will make us happy. That's a rival gospel. And now what happens is, because you make what you want, that's what you want. And your creating and contributing has now been governed by a rival story. So one of the things I want us to to, uh, uh, sort of step back and realize is absolutely called to contribute, absolutely made to contribute. Therefore, be careful what you want. (laughs) And that looks like be careful about how and to whom you give yourself over. To rhythms, routines, and practices. I'll give you one, one other example, because the, 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 the mall's kind of hit hard times <laughs> since, since I started thinking about this. I, I, I'll give you one other example. This, this um, 
uh, came to me from a, uh, apologies, a beer commercial. Uh, so just to, uh, let's be agnostic about beer for the moment. I, I come from the Reformed tradition, so we, we might have slightly different views of this. But uh, um, so this was, and by the way, commercials are the evangelism of consumerism. And the way commercials work is they don't inform you about a product. They put you in the midst of a story and you want to live in that world, right? Marketing knows we are desiring creatures. <laughs> Marketing knows more about us than the church sometimes. So in this 30-second spot, here's what happens. Uh, um, uh, it's, it shows a picture of an office building. It's the end of the workday, and, and a bunch of guys pour out of this office building, a bunch of bros, really. And, and, uh, um, uh, uh, it, 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 but they are, um, it's time to leave, and they carpooled that day. So kudos to these bros for carpooling. That's really impressive. Uh, um, not what I expected. Uh, uh, they, they come out to the curb. It's Buddy's turn to drive home, and uh, they come up to his car at the curb, and it's this really, really lame car. Nobody wants to ride in that car. And so one of them, in this kind of magical world of this commercial, just does this. All of a sudden, boom, the car of their dreams sitting there waiting to take them away. Interesting. Cut scene. Oh, the other thing I should have said is it's a beer commercial, so it is ridiculously sexist. Okay, it's just built into the genre, all right? Cut scene. They're on the beach. I, I don't know who goes to the beach at 5 o'clock, but anyway. They're on the beach. And uh, they see some uh, young ladies in the distance, and they're not sure what the possibilities are here, what's going to happen. They're too far away to tell. So one of them simply does this. All of a sudden, young ladies are right there. They're totally into Michelob Ultra. Everything's copacetic. Let's, let's go out. Cut scene, finally. They're in the club. DJ up on the stage playing music that nobody wants to listen to. It's really, really lame. So again, one of them simply does this. And what they get is exactly what they want, the music that they want to listen to. Now, do you recognize these little micro-rituals? Of course. It's this little desire machine that we caress. And, and I, I watch this and I'm like, this is brilliant. What, it, what it's really saying is micro-rituals have macro-implications. Because what's going on here is over time, it's showing, do you see what it's illustrating? That in effect, the way that I interact with this device is training me over time to expect the world to be available to me on my terms, when I want it, how I want it, so I should never ever be bored. And in a sense, the world answers to my wants, my, my needs, my interests. I should never have to talk to you if I don't want to. I can always just retreat into my phone. I should never, have to do, I should never ever have to be quiet or contemplate anything because I should be able to distract myself here. And notice what's going on. We haven't said a word about the content of what you, you could be reading uh, the Gospel Coalition website all day or whatever. I, I don't know what it'd be. But, you, but it's the very form of the practice that sort of involutionally gets me self-involved so that this now becomes, through the form of the ritual, an egoism machine. And I am tacitly, in this practice, effective. now even when I look up at the rest of the world, I expect the world to answer to me on my terms, and I'm the center of the universe. That's a cultural liturgy. There's so many cultural liturgy. We, we could talk about the stadium. I'm so not doing that in the South. Uh, we, we, could, um, uh, we, we could talk about the university. 
uh, uh, the, the sort of rituals of, of a state university. Uh, um, there's all kind, once you put these lenses on and start to analyze, the, the point is simply this. Uh, by the way, it's also, we should exactly, this is how we should think about race and racism. R- racism is not primarily an ideology. It's not a set of ideas. See, if you, if you think of racism as basically just a worldview or a set of bad ideas, you can comfort yourself by saying, well, I don't believe those ideas. Well, that's hardly the question. The question is, have you been inculcated by stories that tell your gut something else? right? We practice our way into our racism. Once you put on this cultural liturgical lens, you, you start to see the water that you swim in in anew, and you start to realize, oh man, I have not been aware of the extent to which my heart has been captured and co-opted and captivated by rival visions of the good life. So therefore, I couldn't have been aware of how much my contributing, my creating, my making has been governed by a, a story other than God's story of reconciling all things to himself. So what, what do we do with that? Here's, here's the last uh, uh, sort of constructive theme that I would like us to think about. You're made to be makers. You make what you want. You might not want what you think because you haven't realized the extent to which our, our immersion in these rival liturgies has sort of deformed our hearts. So now what do we do in response to this? Well, now is where we need to think about how to curate our hearts. In other words, now what should, what should happen is, is we should have new intentionality about stewarding the formation of our imagination. We should be much more careful and attentive about how uh, uh, um, our heart's imagination, our heart's desires are shaped by the practices and rhythms and rituals, the liturgies that we give ourselves over to. Now, I, I will say, I think the first constructive moment is actually just becoming aware of the ritual, right? Becoming aware of that these cultural rhythms are liturgies, that they're not just something that I do, that they do something to me. That's why, you know, when, when, when the kids say, well, you take us to the temple, huh? That's sort of the beginning of, like, defanging their effect. It's, it, it's a little bit like saying, I see what you're trying to do to me. However, I don't want to overestimate that. Uh, the, the, you, you, it can't just be a negative insight into what's wrong. You need constructive countermeasures. And this is where, and I I don't know how crazy this will sound to you, but this is where I want to argue that if we want to be redemptive contributors, if we want to be kingdom-oriented culture makers, one of the best, most significant, influential investments we can make in the formation of our imagination is go to church. (laughs) Now, let me explain why. Well, and and actually, when I say go to church, there's a little asterisk of qualification that I want to talk about in a second, okay? But here's what I mean. I want to reframe what's at stake in our participation in Christian worship now to see that actually one of the things that should also be happening in Christian worship is that the Holy Spirit is now recalibrating our wants, re-indexing our desires, 
re-narrating our identities so that now we give ourselves over to the spirited practices of the body of Christ, the liturgy of Christian worship, because this is now how our hearts learn to love again, anew. That, that in a sense, the, 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 the worship of the body of Christ is like the, the design studio you need to be formed in if you are going to be a contributor, a maker, an innovator who is actually building things towards what God envisions as the kingdom of God rather than these rival stories. So that it's, now I'm not saying that that's all you need to do. There's all kinds of things we need to do to learn how to do this well, especially in different disciplines. But I wanna make the case that in a sense, the, the, the worship of the body of Christ, the church is a kind of incubator for agents of the coming kingdom who will make towards what God wants for the world. If we are going to be agents of that coming kingdom, acting, making, contributing in ways that embody God's desires for creation, then our imaginations need to be conscripted by God, reformed by God. So it's not enough to just convince our intellects. Our imaginations need to be caught up by, caught up into the story now of God's restorative, reconciling grace for all creation. So it won't be enough to be convinced. We need to be moved. And that means that we need to give ourselves over to, and and so by the way, like going to a conference and getting the right idea is not going to do it. Do you know what I mean? Sadly, not even reading a book will do it. (laughs) Uh, uh, The point is, your imagination is something that is shaped over time by the practices that you give yourselves over to, that, that we immerse ourselves in. And so that's precisely why I need to make a commitment to the ongoingness of how this formation works. Think of it this way. Worship restores us because worship restores us. Worship restores us as God's image bearers. Finally, in Christ, we can be the image bearers we were made to be. Worship restores us because it restories us. And, and maybe, maybe a, a, just a key baseline point is to emphasize, when I, what we're talking about worship here, we don't just mean, already we reframe worship in this sense. Worship isn't us coming and showing God something. Worship is not just bottom-up expression. Worship is actually answering a call where God calls us into his body and now he is doing something in us, for us, to us. (laughs) The primary actor in Christian worship is not us. The primary actor in Christian worship is God, the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, when we answer the call to worship, we are actually already joining the Son who is incessantly praising the Father. And to get caught up into His story, we need to give ourselves over to the rhythms of the body of Christ. Uh, um, uh, uh. So think of worship now as not something we do to show God something. The reason why we answer the call to worship is because it's a space in which God is doing something in us and to us and reforming, re-narrating, re-storying us in the gospel. However, uh, um, this is one of the reasons why, and I, may, I don't know if we'll get a chance to talk about this, but it, it's 
precisely one of the reasons why one of the most detrimental things that has happened in North American Christianity is we just imitate consumerism in the church. Right? The whole point is worship, the worship of the body of Christ is a counterformative practice that, that is re-narrating us and reorienting us in the gospel and towards God's kingdom because the rhythms and practices of that historic Christian worship are over time a sort of immersing us in the story of God and Christ reconciling the world to himself. It has to be weird for it to work as counterformation. But over the past generation, what happened is, in the name of relevance or whatever it might be, being seeker-sensitive, what we decided to do is we just picked up these other cultural forms and practices, and we kind of wheeled them into the church as a way to be relevant, and we didn't realize we were reeling in a rival liturgy. <laughs> this is a Trojan horse. So, oh, congratulations, 5,000 people want to come to your event on Sunday morning. That's because they're consumerists. They know how to consume. You've set up one more experience of consumerism for them. You've created passive audiences who come for a performance. And, and what's happening is you, you, we don't realize, we, we, we think, oh, well, we're, you know, we're being contextualized and, and we're sort of, we're, re, we're redeeming the mall or something like, you know, no, no, you're commodifying Jesus. When you speak to people whose overwhelming liturgical immersion is consumerist, and now the church just looks and feels like one more space of consumerism, it's not actually an opening and opportunity for them to meet Jesus. It's actually one more way that we domesticate the Lord of history so that they are not encountering Him, but just one more thing to put on the shelf to make them happy. And what I worry about is that it, it's not stewarding our imagination in such a way that we become the formers, the makers, the creators, the contributors that God is really calling us to be. Friends, we need to uh, um, be careful what we worship, but also be careful how we worship. I want to tell a Star Wars story. I'm going to take two minutes to say, is that okay? I, I want to take two minutes to tell a Star Wars story. So one of the really interesting things about the creation of the star, which has kind of gone off the rails, but go back to like the classics. <laughs> One of the key moments in the early trilogy is the famous, I am your father. Luke, I am your father, right? So here's, here's, here's now I want to think about this as a creative process. And, and we now know this story about the creation of that moment, that in fact, when George Lucas was beginning to create the saga he didn't know that moment would come, right? In other words, a huge, huge linchpin moment in, in, the, in the narrative arc of Star Wars is when it turns out, oh my gosh, Darth Vader is Luke's father. And in fact, all of a sudden, now all these things in the past sort of click into view. But from the perspective of a contributor, a creator, an innovator, George Lucas, when he starts imagining this drama, he actually doesn't know that that moment is coming. In fact, and this is the interesting thing, Lucas was kind of taken up with Buddhism at the time. This is very California. And, and uh, um, in f he wanted the sort of narrative force of the saga to be evil comes from attachment 
And redemption is letting go. Letting go of desire. Becoming detached from things. But what's interesting is as he was creating, it turns out that it was precisely love, relationship, that became the engine that drove the narrative. Why? Because even though this is the story that Lucas was thinking about, a much deeper, more powerful story that he wasn't even aware of still governed his imagination, and he ends up making a world, making a story out of that deeper story that he's absorbed that he's not even aware of. Friends, our goal as makers, contributors, is precisely to become the kind of people for whom the gospel, the story of God and Christ reconciling the world to himself, is that narrative that is so deep in us we can't not make out of it. And the way that will happen is by giving ourselves over to the practices of the body of Christ. So be careful what you worship. It will shape what you want, and it will, therefore, what you make and how you contribute. Thanks very much. What a great message by Jamie. I think this is such an important conversation that we should be having as Christian educators. How do we truly shape and form students in meaningful and relevant ways? Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you liked it, make sure you go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss the next one. I appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you look forward to the next one.